So if you can explain how improvements in your program products and services can result from precision governance of regulations, security, and privacy, that really does um, help to support their understanding of why they need it because now they can view it in a business perspective. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Rebecca, good morning. Well, good evening to where you are in the United States. And you actually are, I think, my second last podcast for 2021. So it's definitely been a big year for podcasting on my side. So I'm really keen today to get your thoughts and your opinions. I follow you online, so I've definitely seen some of the content you've put out there. So I'm keen to hear what you have to say in the governance space. But before we do that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So please, Rebecca, walk our listeners through where you started to where you are now. Sure. Well, um, it's been quite a pathway, that's for sure. Um, I earned a double bachelor of science degrees in mathematics and computer science, and I taught 7th through 12th grade math and computing for a couple of years, and then after that, uh, earned um, double master's degrees in computer science and education. I started my corporate career as a systems engineer, and that was at a large multinational financial and healthcare corporation way back in 1988. And I actually engineered and created their change control system. Um, And after being responsible for this online change control system for about two years, there was an opening in the IT audit area. So working in the change control system really helped me to see firsthand the importance of controls, of controls over code and software changes and so on. And so I applied for and was chosen for the IT audit opening because I wanted to learn more about how controls impact business. After I went to that IT audit area, um, there was a, a an initiative that they needed someone to do. And so they said, hey, Rebecca, will you um, do an audit of our security here at the organization? Well, imagine this, in 1990 and 91, back before there were any security or privacy laws or regulations. So I created a uh, audit program, performed the enterprise-wide information security audit, and I took a very wide and deep approach to doing this audit. It took me about seven months to complete. And as a result of the audit, I said, hey, you need to create an information security department. And the executives were impressed uh, with the audit report. And they said, hey, you spent seven months doing this. So why don't you go ahead and build that department for us. So I'm really happy I had that opportunity. And I started addressing privacy then simultaneously with security in 1994 when I was given the responsibility of establishing privacy requirements for what my organization indicated was going to be the first online bank. 
And this was in addition to my responsibility for creating all of the information security requirements for the bank being online. Now think about that, 1994, um, for your listeners who uh, were even alive then, um, there basically was no laws or regulations. We were in the Wild West. So um, I was dealing with trying to figure out what those risks were. There were no privacy laws. I thought it was important, though. I had read the OECD privacy principles way back then. And I said, uh, you know, we need to address privacy. And so uh, after some talk with the CEO, who I got to know uh, because he ran into the organization early in the morning at 5.30 a.m. when I also got there, um, he said, you know, you've convinced me that we need to do this, but since there's no laws... For this, uh, our legal counsel, that's not something that they would address because there are no laws about it. So he said, why don't you address this in addition to security? So long story short, I started doing both privacy and security in the mid-1990s. And I love that I was able to do both at the same time because it really did show me how closely they were related, where they overlapped, and where uh, they had divergences. I left that organization in 2000. I started my own information security and privacy consulting business in 2004, and uh, I've been doing that consulting ever since. In fact, my um, probably most common customer is the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST. I just love doing work for them. I've been uh, my my recent and current one uh, project I'm doing for them is as part of their um, Internet of Things cybersecurity development team. I'm one of their subject matter experts. Um, but uh, since 2004, I started doing a lot of consulting for things that were repetitive. And I had this idea of how to engineer and automate uh, repetitive analytical and math work involved. So uh, I thought this would be a good thing to create an online service for. So I partnered with some folks in 2009 to create a SaaS business. And then uh, another group of folks in 2014 with a separate SaaS business. And then in January 2020, I co-founded with my 24-year-old son, Noah, our privacy and security Brainiac SaaS business that we have launched online training for currently, and we continue to build out services. So there's a little over 30 years kind of compressed into about five minutes. <laughs> I love that. I love that you founded a business uh, with your son. That's awesome. I actually haven't heard that on the show before and I've interviewed a lot of people. So one of the things that was interesting that you said, uh, going back to the example with the company that you formerly used to work in, the legal counsel just didn't want to address. Do you think it's because there was no real obligation? They could kind of get away from it, from, from it because, like you said, there was no laws there's no regulation, they didn't have to do it. Would you say that was the impetus for them to sort of perhaps go around what you were saying? 
Well, I think that they were, uh, I mean, I had a good relationship with them. So they could understand my concern, but it, it truly was the case. This was a, a, and still is a really large multinational corporation. So their legal counsel, they address all applicable laws, but um, it was just part of their charter for their legal department if there was not uh, either a legal contract in place or there were no applicable laws or regulations, then why would they have their lawyers spend time doing something um, that was not legally required when they had so many other things to address? So, yeah, so that's why I, I got involved. Now, uh, a side note to that story, though, even though I was the one that started addressing it back before there were laws and regulations, they still kept in close touch with me because they were interested to see, you know, what I was learning and what other organizations were doing. Because think about it, at the time, the first online bank, that was what their goal was to be. So competition was an issue that they were very interested in, but also they wanted to know what I was learning about perhaps some of the legal issues that are other uh, competing first time on uh, the internet banks were also dealing with, because at that point in time, it was a pretty small world with cybersecurity. So I got to know a lot of the other cybersecurity folks also dealing with online banks and financial businesses. Yeah, that's so interesting. So, okay, one of the things I want to dive into now is let's talk about governance. I've historically worked in a GRC team before. I was in a regulated um, banking uh, and fin services. So of course, things are a little differently. But talk to me about your definition of what this means to you specifically. Now, I ask this because you sort of just alluded to it you've got regulated, non-regulated. So there's obviously there's a reasoning as to why people care a little bit more about governance, risk and compliance versus other industries that are not regulated. They can kind of get away with it a little bit more. So tell me everything. What sort of comes up in your mind when I ask you that question? Sure. And I think too, um, before I dive into the answer, I think it's important now the context of the times have changed. We didn't have folks who, or businesses or organizations that had posted privacy notices uh, back then, or a lot of contracts that included security or privacy clauses. Today, though, we have so many other types of requirements that go beyond laws and regulations. We have standards. Uh, you have to comply with your own posted privacy notices and security policies in addition to all of these contracts. So that has really expanded what legal will do today as opposed to what they used to do back 30 years ago. But when, when we're talking about precision governance. You know, what I think is so important for your listeners is that you, they have to start thinking about governance as going beyond minimum necessary. And that's what too many organizations try to get away with, I guess you can say. And I don't think it's in a sneaky way when I say that. I think it's in a way that they don't want to put any more um, resources or money or time towards it than what they feel is necessary for what they get as a return 
from that investment. But precision governance, it goes beyond just doing the minimum necessary to show that you're doing something, right? It goes beyond doing the next step in program maturity for a governance program, like using an established framework. It goes beyond doing the next step up in program maturity, which is you know establishing data for creating metrics. It is the next step beyond. It's where you take action based on the metrics. It's where you have knowledge and ongoing awareness of all parts of your organization. You know what you have. You know where you have it. You know who you are sharing it with, who is using it, and when you don't need it anymore. Precision governance is being able to make decisions based upon these insights to have the best outcome for the business in addition to supporting security and privacy and regulatory compliance. Precision governance truly is removing the blind spots out of what is normally what most uh, organizations too often do with regard to their governance activities. Yeah, I love the way you said that because something that I've heard in the past is people talking about governance as if it's like busy work because they can't necessarily attribute perhaps, I don't know, like a SOC analyst, like they can't see the impact. How would you respond if someone pushed back on you like, oh, well, Rebecca, that's just busy work, right? Like you said before. And it's not like people are trying to go around it. It's just more so they perhaps would put resources into doing other things that they can see that direct impact. Yes. And it um, it truly does help to make your business better. So it's important to let people understand this. So oftentimes when I'm speaking with organizations, with their business leaders, you know, I, I ask them, I say, you know, well, consider, um, let's say you're going to drink a soft drink or a pop or a soda, whatever you want to call it. Let's say you were looking for a diet pop. And you saw one pop can and it said zero calories and nothing else. You see another pop can. And besides saying zero calories, it also shows on the back all of the dietary information. It shows calories, vitamins, carbs, caffeine, all the ingredients. And it includes the address for the soft drink manufacturer, the lot number associated and so on. If you had to choose between taking one uh, product versus the other, and they cost basically the same, which would you choose? Well, you would probably choose the one that took the time to make sure that they were letting you know as much about how they put care into their product as possible. So that way you could help make the best decision for yourself. The, the, value of precision governance is that not only does it make your business better, but it helps you to demonstrate to your potential clients, to your customers, to the general public, that you are looking out for them with whatever you are offering to them, whether it be a product or a service. So, you know, precision governance is really knowing as much about 
what you are offering and how they apply to your organization and, and how you are addressing legal requirements and mitigating risk and protecting those who are consuming your products and services as possible. And I think um, when you explain this to executives, of course, executives their ears perk up when they start hearing about how to sell more, how to market better, how to get more people aware of them, right? So if you can explain how improvements in your program products and services can result from precision governance of regulations, security, and privacy, that really does um, help to support their understanding of why they need it because now they can view it in a business perspective instead of what they view as some, you know, technical type of nerd uh, topic that they really never have understood and really have never cared about before. Would you say that many organizations have the right intent when it comes to developing the appropriate policies and procedures but then when it comes to the adherence of these policies perhaps that that falls down and I ask that because I mean I've spoken to many people um even consulting companies that I've consulted at it's like yeah we've got a policy but it's like no one really follows it it's like developed once like 40 years ago and then no one's updated it no one even knows it exists maybe one guy that's been working there for a long time knows it exists but no one cares to follow it and so then my mind goes well what's the point of even doing it in the first place if no one's adhering to it what, what are your thoughts on that well i think in those types of situations um those who are responsible for the policies and procedures don't themselves understand why they are necessary you know why you need to have them especially in today's world where we see the news almost every day. There's new types of security incidents or ransomware being hit all over the place. There's botnets being spread. Um, what they aren't doing correctly with policies and procedures is, first of all, viewing it as a way to protect their business and to make it run better and be better. Uh, more profitable, but also to protect their customers and consumers and patients and everything else. So I think too many times, kind of like what you were describing, too many times organizations think, well, we have to do policies and procedures because that's what um, these regulations tell us we need to do. They don't view it as an opportunity to use them as a way to improve their business and make it better. And then as a result, to do better financially by having more consumers, customers, and so on. They view it as this thing that nobody wants to do. And I just hate hearing that. Over the years, I just hate when people say, oh, and it's usually the people responsible for the policies and procedures. I hate to hear them say, well, I know that you don't like our policies and procedures, but it's a necessary evil. I've never <laughs> said that. You cannot let people know the value of your policies and procedures when you yourself you know, are out there saying, yeah, we don't think they're good either, but this is why we're putting them out there. No, they, they truly do have value. You have to passionately believe it and explain that to people why when you have policies and procedures that were thoughtfully created, that 
fit your organization that actually improve your business and protect it and your customers, that's what makes it so important to follow those procedures and policies. So I think it all comes from maybe finding the support for the policies and procedures from the executives and finding those who truly understand how valuable they really are to actually be the ones responsible for putting the policies and procedures out there, communicating them, having training for them, and making sure that everyone else understands their value as well. Why do you think people don't view policies and procedures as an opportunity? Yeah, you know, I think they've kind of had a bad rap from uh, a lot of times from the top still. And I always go back to this because throughout my career, I've seen when executives feel that it's not a good return on investment. I use that term because I've heard way too many CEOs over the years say such things as, well, you know, um, we hate doing security, but the laws say we have to do this. So, you know, we aren't getting any ROI on it, but it's just helping to make sure that we pass the audit. The the people who work at those organizations, they see that attitude from the executives. And, and when they see that their executives don't value security and privacy, they aren't going to value it either. That's why back with my, um, at the beginning, when I talked about, you know, talking with the CEO and convincing him to have privacy addressed, even though we didn't have a legal responsibility to do so, he supported me, even though I wasn't the law uh, department, he supported my efforts to actually implement that. If I did not have his support because he truly got it and he saw where it was a differentiator, if he had not been on board and said, hey, all the 24,000 employees in this company, you know, you need to make sure that you're following these policies and procedures. If you feel like you can't, then contact me, being the CEO, directly and I'll have a talk with you. He never had anyone contact him directly because once the CEO said that you had to do this, nobody was going to argue with him. So I say, you know, from my experiences over the years, and this has been in many other organizations as well, when the executives don't get it and they don't support strongly the efforts to secure information and have a strong program, it's, it's going to be the recipe for failure for anyone who is assigned to be the CISO at that organization because the employees are going to do what they see the CEO thinks is important. Do you believe that policies, procedures have a negative connotation? In other words, like audit, internal and external compliance, governance, regulation, it seems to be is that negativity sort of attached to it and that eye roll. Uh, like you said it before, that it gets a bit of a bad rep. Totally agree. And I know this because I've worked in uh, a GRC team before. As soon as you start, you know, using words like we need to be compliant and things like that, people, I feel they start to tune out. Would you say that's the case with your experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been writing pro policies and procedures since back before, you know, the – 
that they were anything that was very much done in a lot of organizations. But when people, first of all, you can't have policies and procedures that are just written in a very um, neutral or, you know, a way that doesn't apply to the organization. And that is the first mistake. I see too many organizations try to take canned policies and just take them as written. Anybody could read that from any uh, industry, any business, and they would read that and say, okay, well, yeah, we can't have, you know, weak passwords. What does that mean to us here in uh, Acme Insurance or whatever their business name is? So the first mistake is when you write, when people who are writing the policies and the supporting procedures, which need to be different from the policies, they need to be applicable to the org, uh, the departments using them. But you need to make sure that those policies make sense to those who have to follow them. When people understand how a policy relates to their business and how it relates to their job responsibilities, I've seen that they're they're more on board. In fact. Uh, throughout the years, whenever I've done, and I've done lots of training uh, in many different organizations and created a lot of training programs and classes, I always include within the training, first of all, describing how this concept of security or privacy, explain how doing what you're asking them to do in the organization, how this applies to them. If they were in their own home, you know, how would they protect their own data? If people can have a sense of ownership over what they're doing and how it applies to them in their own life, they're going to understand better how it applies within their work life. And when they see that, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe we should be protecting this data in this way to make sure that all of our customers don't, you know, <laughs> get a case of identity fraud all over the place because when we had to deal with that or my parents had to deal with that or my children, you know, that was a really big hassle for them and it cost them a lot of time and money. So I think just how policies are written is the first main problem with why people aren't uh, following them. And then you need to make sure you, you keep them updated. I've seen too many organizations. I went in one time, it was around 2011, the year 2011, and I was doing an audit and I asked if this organization to review their policies. Oh yeah, we have policies. Um, they hadn't been updated since 1992. I said, has your organization changed since 1992? Well, of course we've changed. I said, well, how come these policies are still your policies? They're they're no longer applicable. So making sure you update the policies as you update your business is also a very important thing to make people take notice of them. Otherwise, people are intuitive. They can tell if you're asking them to do things that don't even apply to the business anymore. And of course, that then makes them just not look at any of the policies. If they see that some of them are old and no longer applicable, they're going to say, ah, why should we even care about following policies if, if they are giving us policies that don't even apply anymore? You raised something before, Rebecca, around people that are 
responsible for the policies and procedures, but are sort of saying it back to you that it's a bit, you know, you know, it's part of what we have to do. It's not very, you know, it is important, but we must do it. So there's sort of that, I don't know, that almost macabre approach towards it. So would you say that perhaps certain people that are responsible for policies and procedures, perhaps they're not the right people managing it as well because they're not sort of leading, well, this is not all of the cases, this is some of the example that you've sort of spoken about here today. Would you say that perhaps they're not the right person to lead uh, on the policies and procedures or to own that? Uh, because they're sort of shooting themselves in the foot. It's, you know, you can't say, yes, we must do it. But then you're also sort of saying like, oh, well, it's a bit boring and we have to do it because we're in a regulated industry. Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head there. Because here's, here's the two biggest mistakes I see organizations make when they assign the responsibility for managing, writing and managing the policies and procedures. So number one, Unfortunately, in too many organizations, they give the pol- the responsibility for writing security and privacy and governance policies um, to those who are, you know, kind of lowest down in the org chart who, you know, well, we'll assign it to that person, you know, we, nobody else wants to do it. We'll give it to the person who's the newest Right there's a big mistake because whoever is writing your policies and procedures should either know your business well or have enough experience to know the right questions to ask to write the policies well. So, yeah. So if you are assigning policies and procedures to someone who has no authority because of where they are located in the org chart, how are people going to even you know, consider, oh, I better do this because here's somebody over here giving me a policy and they have no authority to enforce this, but they're giving it to me. Eh, I'm not going to do it. I have other things to do. So that's the number one biggest mistake. Number two is they assign giving the legal department the um, responsibility for writing the security and privacy policies. Now that sounds good to some because they'll be like, oh, well, they're going to make sure that they cover all of the, the legal requirements in those policies. Well, that may be true, but in most cases, and I have a lot of friends who, who are lawyers and they are fabulous lawyers, but they are also very, um, <laughs> very legal ease in the way that they write. And you want to make sure, again, to my uh, previous point, when you're writing policies, you have to make them relatable to the people who must follow them. You can't write a long document that's going over all of these different precedents and talking about different legal types of requirements just explain what is expected for them to do and make sure that it's understandable. You don't have to, you know, be preparing for a court case for a criminal trial. And too many um, policies, when they are written in the legal department, and again, I'm not saying that this is always the case, but I have seen this a lot over the years, you need to make sure that whomever is writing the policies, writes them so that they are 
appropriate for the business and understandable by those who must uh, follow them. And those policies need to be at the appropriate level that has the authority to implement them. So from your experience, where do you believe the biggest gap is when it comes to doing governance with accuracy versus just doing it? And I mean, I've spoken to people before about doing compliance versus doing compliance right. So I'm really keen to hear your thoughts. I mean, you sort of peppered in the conversation today a little bit about people's apprehension to doing it or their resistance to doing it. So I'm really keen to hear what you have to say with all of your 30 plus years of experience, because again, I feel that governance to some degree comes back to the old adage, the compliance tick in the box. Yes, we've done enough. And then that's it. Yes. Well, there's still way too many organizations. And again, uh, this is also a continuing thing, theme. Hopefully, the executives are the ones who drive the narrative. So when executives understand that they need to have strong programs in place and the value that it provides, they are the, going to be the ones that uh, support having an accurate governance program and having one that uh, goes beyond just ticking the boxes, but also actually improves business and protects their customers and patients and whomever else is consuming their services and products. So I think we still see way too many organizations, especially small and medium-sized organizations, oftentimes don't have the funds to hire someone just dedicated to doing uh, governance, or they don't have the funds to hire someone with experience to do that, even along with their other job responsibilities. So oftentimes it, it comes down to, well, you know, let's just get something in place so it, we can demonstrate that we tried to do this, then we'll worry about improvements later. But later never comes. Uh, once they they get something in place and they're like, ah, that's good enough. It shows that we tried to do something. That's oftentimes with attitudes like that. That's oftentimes where the the process stops and they're they're left down in the maturity um, model level at level you know zero to one where they just took enough to show that they're trying to do something but does that actually improve the security of the organization and all the digital ecosystems eh, it might provide a little bit here and there but it's sure not going to be comprehensive and in fact it might give a false sense of security throughout when uh, you only have, you know, something secured over here and another thing secured over there, but you have all these gaping holes everywhere else because you didn't go forward and try to govern with precision to know where everything was at and where all your risks were that you needed to mitigate. So what I'm hearing from what you're saying is having the right attitude and really driving this behavior and permeating this behavior throughout the organization from the top down, but also from the bottom up as well. Is that a fair assumption to say? And then I understand your point around, you know, funds and, you know, certain organizations don't have the capacity to hire a full-time DRC person or policies writer. Would you say that if we 
implement this shift like within organizations that will start to move the needle around doing governance with precision versus just doing it? I think that is a very good first start. And I would go a little bit beyond that to say that organizations need to help now in our, you know, highly digital society, everybody is carrying with them at least one and oftentimes five or six types of computing devices. So what organizations need to do are a couple of things. Number one, they need to explain to their employees and contracted workers and third parties, make sure that they're doing this too. They need to help them understand how to better protect their own personal data when they're away from work. That way, when they're at work, they will see, oh, I better do this type of security or privacy activity because if I don't, there could be a breach or there could be a security problem happen because you have helped them to understand where risks are at in their own home Wi-Fi network environment. Now they're going to see where those risks are at at work as well. And then number two, organizations have got to stop just, you know, spending one day a year for maybe two hours giving training. This has to be ongoing. I mean, I, I truly support and find it effective and have for many years. You don't have to give long training, but maybe just, you know, even once a month have a 15, 20 minute training maybe a live training that people can watch during their lunch, or maybe it's an online training video or program, something over a specific topic that also relates to them in their home life. And then at the end, relate it to that same issue at work. For instance, uh, for some insurance companies throughout the years, I go in every quarter and we have these full day of sessions where I give the same session six times uh, for 40 minutes throughout the day and people can come whenever they want. But like one t- sometimes I'll talk about how to secure your home Wi-Fi router. But then when I get to the end, the last five minutes, the CISO gets up and says, thank you, you know, for talking about that. And here's why we have Wi-Fi security and privacy policies here at our organization. And what uh, Rebecca just talked about, those same issues apply here. It can be for other things too, uh, IoT devices now and so on. But I think that the two main things are to make sure that um, you give training on an ongoing basis, send out ongoing reminders or awareness types of information. And then also, um, you know, make sure that uh, you keep everything up to date and you let people know how it applies to them personally. Now, coming from my background historically as a reporting analyst, part of my job was to report across all the different metrics across the organization. So I'm really keen to hear, this is where my, you know, report analytics hat comes on and I start thinking around, well, how do we sort of measure success or what are the metrics that you would use to track effective governance? And I guess my second point to that would be, how do we know 
people are following the right policies and procedures? Like how, do, how do we know for sure that way we can sort of uh, report that back to the executives to know, like, yes, all the things that we're doing actually is paying dividends and we're making a difference within our organization? Yes. Oh, great question. So, um, well, the first thing comes before you even get to the policies and procedures. So with, uh, in addition to, or in relation to your KPIs, you, um, you need to know, do you have an inventory of all of your data? Do you have an inventory of your devices, your systems, your applications? Because you aren't going to secure your organization if you don't have that to begin with. So first you need to get that in place. But then with regard to uh, measuring success after you have the policies and procedures, something that I did do early on in my career that was really helpful was um, with regard to knowing the policies and procedures, I would put on different types of events. So like in uh, October and November or November, one of those two day, um, months each year, we would have special um, presentations from people come in, but we would also do things like having a week where we would have Cybersecurity Awareness Week. And back in, I think the first time I did it was around 1993 or 94, uh, outside of our uh cafeterias that we had throughout our business campuses, why we set up this big wheel. Did I have the budget to put up a big wheel? You know, like uh, you have Wheel of Fortune, you know, this is kind of like, yeah, Wheel of Fortune, only this is up on its side. I didn't have a budget for that, but guess who had a budget for that, that I had um, had a key stakeholder within that I communicated with and is also an area where there's a lot of data in the marketing area. So I went to my main contact key stakeholder in the marketing area. They had this huge, they had more than a huge closet. They had like a whole floor full of all of this stuff that they didn't use anymore. And one of them was one of these huge wheels that you would spin. And I said, Hey, can I use that? So what we did was we replaced all of the, um, the, the sections on that wheel with different topics that came from our security policies manual. We put it outside of the cafeteria. I also uh, worked with the cafeteria vendor to get some free um, 50 cent coupons, which it was subsidized, uh, you know, my, the subsidized cost of coffee and pop at that time was like 50 cents. So a 50 cent coupon would get you a free drink, basically. So I got a whole bunch of those. So outside of the cafeteria during that whole week, the first day people looked at it and they're like, what's going on here? Um, they spun the wheel. I'd ask a question. It was related directly to uh, the policies, you know, if they answered it correctly, that means that they kind of knew what the security policy required for that topic. Well, the first day we had a few people and they, a few of them got it, but not a lot. But the ones that got it were like, hey, we got free coffee and pop, you know, by knowing the security stuff. Um, the next day, there were a lot more people coming in. And by the end of the week, we had a long line of people 
wanting to answer questions. They had gone back and studied the, the security policies and procedures. They were motivated because of the free drinks. But you know what? They also, as a result, learned about our security policies. So that was a very good um, exercise for me to learn that you, you need to make policies and procedures they they're bland on their own you can make, you can write them to make them more interesting but you still for most people especially today with uh you know everyone expecting to be entertained you need to do more make them fun and and do these types of exercises um you know there's a lot of other types of things you can do with contests and with different types of interactions so with those KPIs, um, what was really fun was at the beginning of the week, I knew that we were getting almost zero people visiting their, our intranet where we had our policies and procedures all posted. And I knew all of the data. By the end of that week, that number had jumped up really high. But here's what I loved about it. That number stayed high for the next six months after the event was over. So once people started knowing where to go and they found things of interest and a way to answer their questions about security and privacy, we saw from that ongoing number staying high for people visiting the policy site that they were interested in knowing these things. So that helped us to drill into the details too about which of the policies and procedures they were visiting the most. So then we could see the ones they weren't visiting and figure out ways to get them interested in those as well. What about sort of people following them, like knowing that, okay, we've written this policy. How, how do we ensure that I don't know, people in marketing are doing the right thing. How would you yes. communicate that back to an executive to say, yes, these 10 people in marketing, they are following the policies and procedures that we've implemented. We're, we're on the right track. Yes. So that is another thing that I started doing. Um, I called them the after hour walkthroughs. So throughout the entire time I was uh, at the company after I had built the, the program. So most of the 1990s, why I had key stakeholders in each of the business units and corporate areas. And so we would plan for twice a month. So every other week we would go in after hours into different um, areas of the facilities. And I had a list of things that each of our team members, the team members would be me, my team members, and then the key stakeholders I had in the area we were looking at and a few of their people too. So we could all go through and we would look at things like uh, at the time, it was, you know, um, whether or not the, the computers were logged in, if the screens were secured in the accounting areas, if there was confidential information left out on the desktops, if they had checks there. So there was a list of about 20 different things that we would look for. And we would write up a report, my team would, and we would give the report to not only the business unit had the VP of whatever area or corporate or business uh, unit area that would be. 
and the CEO, of course, would get a copy of it. So that became very powerful because not only did each of the uh, business unit and corporate areas see how well their area was doing with things that we could even just visibly see. We were going for the low-hanging fruit here, right? The things that were just apparently not being uh, followed. When we did that, then it got to the point where because the CEO got all the the uh, reports as well, he, he became very interested in, well, why does your business uh, unit over here you scored really low on some of these things, but you know why can't you be more like this business you did over there? It, it, it kind of became um, a way to make the business leaders see that it was important for all of them to follow these types of security practices and push it down to their employees so their employees would do it. Now, then on the back end of that, why, of course, there was the digital types of risk assessments and uh, vulnerability assessments and penetration tests. But, you know, the low-hanging fruit with what was just apparent and easy to um, exploit by physically being in the area was a really powerful thing. So that that was very powerful there and at many other organizations after I left there. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I guess with any executive, especially depending on who you speak to, it's all in in the numbers, but I guess those numbers have to make sense about deriving insight from those numbers because, I mean, we can report all day, but if we don't have insight from the numbers, I guess it's just more busy work for people to do. So I really, really appreciate your time, Rebecca, and your thoughts and your insights and your stories that you've shared. Uh, If people have a question for you that I didn't ask you today, how can they go about getting in contact with you? They can certainly go to my website, privacysecuritybrainiacs.com and they can also get in touch with me via email Rebecca Harold at rebeccaherald.com Wonderful, well again, thank you so much for your time and I really appreciate it and I can't wait to get you back on the show, thanks very much Well thank you, I really enjoyed speaking with you Thanks for tuning in We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.